Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Noah Tishby has been a little busy these days. Since April, the actress, television producer, and mother has been serving as Israel's special envoy for combating anti-Semitism and the delegitimization of Israel. She is with us now to discuss this role and her book, available on September 20th in paperback, Israel, A Simple Guide to the Most Misunderstood Country on Earth. Noah, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you. Great to be here. So you and other envoys from around the world will be testifying on Friday before Congress on the need to hold social media companies accountable for anti-Semitism that happens to be on their platforms. You have been one of the leading activists targeting this problem for, gosh, more than a decade now. What are you going to share during that congressional hearing? So we are gathered together. It's called the Biparliamentary Task Force for Combating Online Anti-Semitism. They're going to be seven countries represented with 16 parliamentarians. And um, panel number one is going to be the special envoys, which is Deborah Lipstad and me. And we'll see who else is coming tomorrow. We're not clear 100%. Um, Erwin Kotler, um, probably. And the second panel is going to be the social media companies. We're obviously going to discuss the obvious problem of how anti-Semitism is spreading out online these days and how it's actually spreading out much more than it ever did or ever could have but I'm going to uh, shift the focus to the numbers of what online anti-Semitism is. The bottom line is that the vast majority of online anti-Semitism is not coming from right wing and it's not coming from Holocaust denial and distortion. It's coming from anti-Israel rhetoric and anti-Zionism. And the linkage is blood liable about Israel, right? So like Israel is a genocide state or an ethnic cleansing state that seep through and turn, transform and transmutes uh, immediately into kids on college being harassed and attacked. And this is one of the things that we need to acknowledge that anti-Semitism, as we know, is a shape-shifting conspiracy theory, and this is what it shape-shifted to today, specifically online. So this is one of the major things that I'm gonna be discussing. And so you're talking about it manifesting in, in the anti-Israel context. I mean, you are Israel's first special envoy for combating anti-Semitism and the delegitimization of Israel. That is part of your title. So what exactly does that role entail? And, and is it a role that you think Israel has needed for a while? It's a great question. So when I assumed the position, I received a lot of feedback from people that are in the field for a while that they are excited that Israel appointed somebody. So the fact that Israel didn't have one was something that people in this field have noticed. I didn't notice it. It didn't even occur to me that Israel doesn't have a special envoy for combating anti-Semitism. And to your point, yes, it's combating anti-Semitism and delegitimization of Israel because the bottom line is this. If you're denying one people and one people only the right for self-governance and self-determination, that's racism and there's a specific name for it when it's targeting Jews. So that's the thing that we're extremely specific in pointing out, that I have been extremely specific in pointing out for over a decade, as you said, and that now within this position, I have the privilege of being able to speak to members of parliaments from various countries around the world and to social media companies and hopefully be heard. So Noah, you've often said that we shouldn't look at anti-Semitism as a problem to solve. What do you mean by that? It's a context to live into. 
It's something that we all need to realize. It's never going anywhere. This is what this whole fighting for Jewish pride and for Israel's right to exist to safely and securely is a context to live into. It's something that is not going to get solved. People are always going to be suspicious against Jews and they're always going to have hate and prejudice against the other. And Jews are a part of it. Is that a, a, a kind of a different approach? Do you think that, that people do view it? People with the best of intentions, do they view it as a problem to be solved, to be fought, to be eliminated? Is this kind of a new twist, a new approach to it? It's absolutely true. And I've seen this throughout my you know, 15 years of, of, of work, that people get so flustered and so frustrated, and rightfully so. And they're like, we need to solve this, right? So I've been doing this, as you said, for over a decade. I've been in the trenches. I've done everything, stuff that are public and stuff that are not public, in doing my part in the fight. And last year, when the war in Gaza happened in May, there were a lot of people that were very surprised. They were shocked and mortified by the level of hate that's coming out from online, offline, the attacks and all that. None of us activists and people that have known about this and have worked in the field for a long time, we weren't surprised. But a lot of people from the outside were surprised and I was reached out by a lot of people, members of community, my friends, friends of friends, and their whole thing was like, we need to fix this. We must solve this. This has to end. And I said to everybody, even at the time, like, you guys, this is a long, long, like, you know, this is a long road here. Like, we're playing a long game. And I heard some of this, like, let's get together in the whatever and, like, sit in a room and figure it out. And I'm like, I would love to sit in the room and come up with more ideas and better understanding and more collaboration. But I'm telling you, it's not going to be solved. It's not ending. And I think that this attitude that I've had for many years is an attitude that allows you to wake up in the morning and be okay. Because if you kind of wake up in the morning and feel as a Jew that you're threatened and attacked and you're under duress and you're under siege and you're marginalized and all of that, and I have to solve this or else, it's very, this can be exhausting. It can kill you emotionally and physically probably. And it's, it's like anxiety inducing. So I suggest to all of us to take a seat, chill out, know that this is never going to end and always do our part. Always do our part. And I think that's a healthier way to kind of to kind of look at it and be around it. Keeps you sane. Keeps, keeps you sane, sane, yeah, because it's true. If I'm going to look at my job as if it's not going to get solved, I have failed, then I better not do it. Because you look at history and, you know, <laughs> Josephus Flavius, I talked about this in my book, right, wrote a book called The Antiquity of the Jews in 74 A.D., because of pagan anti-Semitism. So he was so bothered by it at the time in Rome, before there was Christianity or Islam or anything, people hated the Jews. And he felt so bothered by it that he had to write this epic, epic book with like a bazillion volumes. People think that it's gonna end now? No, it's not gonna end, but it's okay. We've been around, we'll survive this. So let's talk about your book, Israel, A Simple Guide, A Simple Guide to the Most Misunderstood Country on Earth. And it is simple. You do make it pretty clear and simple in a black and white case of, of why. But why is Israel so misunderstood? <laughs> so there were a couple of reasons that I named my book the way that I did. It's Israel, A Simple Guide to the Most Misunderstood Country on Earth. So first of all, um, simple I use because every time you talk to people, the first thing that they say when you talk about Israel, they go, oh my God, it's so complicated. I don't know. It's so complicated, right? And I'm like, no, it's actually not that complicated. It's actually not that complicated. The Jewish people deserve the right for self-determination, self-governance in some parts of their ancestral land. That's it. 
it's not that complicated. That's number one. And number two, the reason I said it's the most misunderstood country on earth, it's obviously not the most misunderstood country on earth, right? Like I always like joke that I, I know nothing about Bali or like Denmark, the governance system of Denmark. I have no idea, right? But what I wanted to point out was the discrepancy between how little people know about Israel and how strong their opinions are about it. So I wanted to make it simple because I can, because I'm Israeli and American and I know how to tell the story and explain it to people. And I know that a lot of the listeners, they find it very difficult and very challenging. And I just, I think that at least from the responses that I'm getting, I was able to find a way to explain it. And it's a history book that's easy to read. It's fun and it's funny, you know, God forbid, talk about Israel in a fun and funny way, right? So that's what I was attempting to do, attempting to do in this book. And it seems like it uh, worked out. It is very funny. I did laugh out loud in parts, but laughed out loud at just how true it was, just how matter of fact and true. That's comedy is only funny when it's authentic. (laughs) So your pro-Israel advocacy really began when you encountered certain anti-Israel attitudes in Hollywood when when you first moved to L.A. in the 90s, right? What I encountered wasn't even like an anti-Israel thing. It was just complete lack of knowledge. Right. So the story that I tell in my book, it's about this. Um, it was like my first few months in L.A. and we were hanging out with a group of like young actors, producers, whatever. All of us kind of like young and trying to make it in Hollywood. And there was one girl there who was already famous at the time and ended up being one of the most successful and famous actresses in the world. Like I always say, like everybody knows who she is. Super famous. Right. Won every single award, like very famous. And she comes up to me one day and she's like, oh, I heard you're from Israel. And I said, yes. And she goes, wow. So how does your family feel about you? And I was very confused. I was like, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I think that they're proud. I don't know what. Why? And she's like, you know, that you're not wearing all the headgear and everything. And she used her hands to symbolize this thing that looked like a hijab. Right. So I'm looking at this girl and she is like she's, this is a smart, successful and well-educated human being. Like this is not an idiot. And I'm not taking this to think that she's crazy. I'm kind of going, oh my God, if this is what this woman thinks of Israel, what do the rest of the people think about Israel? And this is how it started. It didn't start out, but out because I encountered anti-Semitism or because I encountered, um, at first at least, anti-Israel sentiment. I, it just started out because I encountered stupidity, <laughs> idiocy, people not knowing what they're talking about. So it started as ignorance, but then it evolved into anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism. Yeah, it evolved to like anti-Israel sentiment and then into like morphed back into good old anti-Semitism pretty quickly. And people heard all these libels, right, all these new libels, and they believed them at face value, and then they didn't want to touch it. They didn't. This is why a lot of people are frustrated by um, Jews or non-Jews and people in Hollywood. They don't want to speak up and protect Israel. And it's not because some of them actually think that Israel should be protected and that Israel is on the right side of history, but they just don't want the vitriol. They don't want the mob, the online mob. So I definitely saw the conversation in the last 20 years shift from Hasbara issue, meaning policy issues, people being unhappy with Israel's policies in the West Bank, for example, but they like their policy and like everything has to do with human rights or women's rights or whatever, LGBTQ community. I've seen a shift from that to like questioning Israel's right to exist. So I've seen a shift from discussing policies to like the actual questioning of Israel's right to exist is something that is extremely dangerous and is totally acceptable in various parts of 
the world, um, in America, in, and usually in like polite societies, right? They're kind of like, yeah, free Palestine. But when you say free Palestine, like Palestine will be free from the river to the sea is a call for ethnic cleansing uh, of, of Jews from their indigenous land. So you're talking about genocide for the Jews? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> so if you don't mind sharing with our audience a little bit of your family history, which you share in the book, your great-grandparents left Russia to help found the Jewish state, right? When I started, quote unquote, falling into advocacy, right? Because I didn't, it wasn't something that I planned. I just kind of like jumped into it and one thing led to another. And I would find myself in the, you know, in like demonstrations and like speaking out and like tweeting and like interviewing about it. My mom at some point was the one that kind of pointed out. She's like, oh, it's in your DNA. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even think about that. So it wasn't something that was in my conscious mind at all. But the fact of the matter is, I was raised in a very, very Zionist family, very liberal, progressive, left-wing, kibbutz, Air Force kind of a family, super Zionist. My grandparents and great-grandparents left um, Europe to come to build the country, basically. So my grandmother is the founder of the first kibbutz in Israel. She's one of the founders of the first kibbutz in Israel, so the first kibbutz in the world. My great-grandfather came to Jerusalem in 1922 to start the Ministry of Industry and Trade in Jerusalem, and he was the one that brought into Israel, you know, like all these industries, the garment industry, the diamond industry, the breweries, the this, the that. Like, he was a big proponent of you can't have a Jewish state without Jewish industry. And my grandfather was Israel's first, not only his first ambassador to Ghana, Liberia, Nigeria, Ivory Coast, he, to all these countries in West Africa, he was actually the first representative that the state of Israel sent to the entire continent of Africa in 1956, in March of 1956, before Ghana became Ghana when it was still Gold Coast. So it's something that was all around. So even though we were very kind of like liberal and like people of the world, and I was all about the entertainment industry as a kid, but this was something that I drank at home, Zionism and the importance of the safety and security of the state of Israel and how the miracle that Israel is. I grew up with that. So while being a liberal and progressive and while understanding that there are sides to every corner, it's a fine. There are two sides to every corner, but Israel has the right to exist. As long as we agree on that, we can start talking about policy. <laughs> and speaking of family, I'm going to flip this. You and I have sons of similar age. Your son Ari turned seven this year, I believe, and my son Max just turned eight. I'm curious, how do you talk to your son about anti-Semitism and antagonism toward Israel? I mean, does he drink Zionism like you did? Oh, <laughs> absolutely. So first of all, my son is, uh, I, I created this concept when he was in the belly. He was, he's a Jewish Israeli Southern gentleman. So he knows he is first and foremost Jewish Israeli, and then he has to be a gentleman as well, right? And he has an Israeli passport, obviously, and all of that. And he is obsessed with Israel. We go at least twice a year. I go with him since he was born. Hebrew is his first language. So he's not even seven yet. So I kind of would say every now and then, like, you know, not a lot of people like Israel, but they don't know it. Like they need to, they need to get to know it and then they'll know it better and they'll love it, right? He knows he's a Zionist. He asked me one time, like, what's a Zionist? And I'm like, do you love Israel? He's like, yeah. I'm like, you're a Zionist. <laughs> but I honestly have not started talking to him about anti-Semitism because I don't want him to grow up with the, uh, with the context of fear and he'll figure it out. Right. I, I grew up with zero anti-Semitism. Obviously, you grew up in Israel, none, none whatsoever. And then I learned he has time. I'm not pushing it on him yet. I'll wait until he can kind of understand it. I don't want him to grow up thinking that he's constantly persecuted. 
because because he's not like everybody you know hates the other Jews are the other as well and that's just human nature okay great let's love everybody now so I'm going to shift gears and ask you I mean because the 2 year anniversary of the Abraham Accords is this week hundreds of thousands of of Israelis are being welcomed in countries where they used to be forbidden I'm curious what impact the accords have had on advocacy for the Jewish state absolutely yeah. huge the thing is this, right? The problem with the Jewish state, the problem with the concept and the perception of the Jewish state is almost worse in like liberal progressive circles in the West. In the Middle East, it's very clear that Israel's not the big bad wolf that some people in the West are trying to paint it as. It's very, very clear. Everybody's very clear that the big bad wolf is Iran. Israel actually has a lot to contribute. The reason that it opened up so um, warmly is because the people of these countries can't be fooled anymore. They all have internet, and even if the internet is forbidden, they find ways to get that information, and they realize that Israel's not the enemy. It just isn't. So it's changing a lot in the Middle East. It's kind of ironic that the Middle East is transforming in such a profound way, and activists in the U.S. don't get it. So would you say that it's more of a formality, you know, on a government or commercial level? Is it having a trickle-down effect to the streets in these countries as well? Absolutely. I haven't had a chance to go to any of these countries yet, and I'm dying to go. So hopefully I'll go soon. But I've never been to any of these countries. But I know from everybody that I've been, and so many people, I mean, it's flooded with Israelis now, right? that they feel so warm, so welcome. People are so excited to see them and so excited to host them. And I'm going to say something, I'm going to go on a limb here, right? Because I, it's only from what I read. I obviously am not privy to any other information, right? But I'm pretty sure that the people of Iran would be extremely open to welcome Israelis as well. It's always governments that are the issue. It's not the people of Iran. It's the government, the Ayatollah government of Iran. That's the problem. Well, certainly that used to be the case. I mean, we just did an episode uh, about Jews from Iran and... We talked about the, the the situation there. Just a few decades ago, Israelis were coming and contributing to Iran. They were living in Tehran, and my dad yeah. was there. Really? Yeah, yeah. My dad when my dad went to Iran. He was uh, when he was a young architect. Um, yeah, he went to Tehran. He had some projects there. So I was like, "What?" It's like, yeah, it was beautiful. All before the revolution, because when you put extremism, any kind of extremism, into government, that's not a good uh, not a good recipe. So you joined us for this year's Global Forum in New York. We loved having you. Um, and we just opened registration for AJC Global Forum 2023 in Tel Aviv. Oh, my God. That's so funny because it's like, all right, you're going to have all these people doing the Global Forum. And, but, but like maybe the, what, when is it going to be? June 11th through 14th of next year, of course, with an optional pre-Global Forum Shabbaton on June 9th through 10th. Now, of course, thousands of people come together for Global Forum every year. Programming includes speakers and breakout sessions and excursions. But do you have any recommendations for those who will join us in Tel Aviv? Where to eat? What to do? Of course, go to Abu Hassan and have hummus because it's the best hummus in the world. All right. Abu Hassan in Jaffa. Best. Oh, my God. Okay. I, really, I really want it now. Oof. I mean, it's the best food in the world. Israel literally has the best food in the world. So not concerned about that. The Tel Aviv Museum is always incredible. Whatever exhibition is going on there is always exciting. I love the Kinneret. So I was in the Kinneret when I was there a couple of, like two months ago, we went to the Kinneret as well and it was amazing. So, you know, oh my God, it's very exciting that it's in Israel. 
Hope to see you in person in Tel Aviv. And for more details and how to register for Global Forum 2023, June 11th through 14th, you can go to ajc.org slash global forum. I just want to say to everybody that's listening, if you're listening to this, you're in the trenches, you're in the fight. Let's just keep it up. Well, thank you so much, Noah. I really do appreciate your time. And again, listeners, uh, Noah's book, Israel, A Simple Guide to the Most Misunderstood Country on Earth, is out in paperback on September 20th. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for my conversation with AJC's U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism, Holly Huffnagel. She breaks down AJC's society-wide call to action against anti-Semitism. And if you missed the season finale of The Forgotten Exodus, featuring author and poet Roya Hakakian, you can find it and more at AJC.org slash The Forgotten Exodus. Don't miss AJC Global Forum 2023 in Tel Aviv. To register, go to AJC.org slash Global Forum. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 